Good morning, everyone. Unfortunately, there was an issue with the recording on Sunday, so I'm currently redoing the recording. Um, but yeah, let's get into praying with Hezekiah. I was really excited when it was announced that we were going to spend a year focusing on prayer as a church. Towards the end of last year, I felt God challenging me on my prayer life. To be honest, it felt like I'd forgotten how to pray. I'd get distracted really easily when I tried. And reflecting on the first half of this year, I think God's been slowly starting to shift my perspective on prayer, which has been great, but I'm definitely going to need more than a year to wrestle through this stuff. And so this morning, I'd like to invite you into some of what I've been wrestling with recently. Because I've given Alpha Talks on prayer before, and I've talked about how despite about 50% of people in this country now identifying as having no religion, 80% of Britons still believe that prayer can be answered. And only one in seven people would insist they'd never resort to prayer in the face of problems in their lives. And so I've made the case in my talk that there's something natural about prayer for humans. Something intrinsic to our nature that causes us to reach out to something bigger than us. That there's something deep within us that could drive even a hardline atheist to pray. I mean, how many prayers do you think that have been uttered that begin, God, I don't believe you exist, but... And yet I find myself looking at that argument from another angle this morning. If the desire to pray is, as I believe it is, embedded within us, and if through the act of prayer I believe that we can see literal and metaphorical mountains levelled, the sick healed and the dead raised, if I believe through prayer that I have direct access to the creator of the universe himself, then why don't I pray without ceasing as Paul spoke about? Why do I sometimes struggle to pray for even five minutes? And the passage I'm speaking on this morning at first might seem like it has very little relevance to us and the answer to that question. It's the story of a king's response in the face of the threat of an invading army. I'm pretty confident that no one here is the leader of a nation under threat of invasion. So why is the story of King Hezekiah useful for us? Well, even if you would describe your life as being fairly comfortable at the moment, the truth of your situation is that as a follower of Christ, you're currently part of a spiritual war. We live in a world that is not what it was designed to be, and there's an enemy seeking to undermine the goodness of our God. And I think one of the reasons we struggle to pray is our perspective on life. I mean, in all honesty, how much of our day-to-day life do we consciously or subconsciously believe that we can get through without God? And when we let this belief that we don't need God creep in, our motivation to pray is drained. We only come to God when we need something. And although it won't be the same situation as Hezekiah's, most of us have faced crisis at some point in our lives. And there's something about crisis that shatters the illusion that we have the ability to control the world around us. Crisis radically alters our perspective. We are laid bare. We feel helpless. And when we're acutely aware of our lack of control, it shifts our prayer life. Prayer is no longer a duty or a discipline, but a lifeline. Prayer is all that we have, and so we pour out our soul, even if it's stuttered, unintelligible words interrupted by sobs, pleading with God to intervene and do what we cannot. We found out at 37 weeks of pregnancy that our son Ezra was in breach, so his head was pointing the wrong way, and we needed to undergo a procedure to try and turn him the right way. Now, this is a procedure with about a 60% chance of working, 
and it required so much effort that the doctor's arms were shaking as he tried to turn him, and Naomi was just in agony. And so I was just sat there feeling utterly helpless, completely aware of my inability to do anything to affect the outcome in the natural. But without thinking, without trying, I was continually praying. I didn't stop, couldn't stop praying. It just made me realise that my prayer life is heavily influenced by my perspective and how much I think I need God in that moment. The truth of my situation is that I'm in desperate need of God every second of every day. He provides my every breath. He guides me. He protects me. I mean, if you really think about it, we're currently sat on a lump of rock hurtling through space at 70,000 miles per hour, circling a flaming ball of gas that could implode at any second, and we're not wearing any seatbelts. And I'm aware that some people in this room might be in crisis right now. And certainly a lot of us will have experienced crisis at some point in our lives. And you might just feel like you're free-falling and barely hanging on. And so you might be questioning, well, how can I be suggesting that crisis could help reframe the way we approach prayer? You might just be trying to survive one day to the next. And I don't pretend to know what everyone's going through, but I do trust that God works all things for good. And one way I think that you can work some of the hardest circumstances we face for good it's by doing a deep work in us. Something that will have an eternal consequence that extends past our present circumstance. I believe that times of crisis can be the places of deepest learning and growth in our spiritual walk. And whilst in the midst of it, you might not be able to see clearly that God is moving and gently transforming you more into the likeness of Christ. You know, I think it's, it's often a lot easier to reflect back, but... Sometimes once we leave those times of crisis, we don't want to ever think about them again. But I think if we don't, we might miss some of what God wanted to show us. And also, I know I've been so inspired by watching people I love walk through crisis in their own lives. I've learned from their experience and I've watched how they've responded. And if we can watch how we or someone else responds when they're living with the clearer perspective that crisis can bring, and we can incorporate that into our prayer life. And I think it'll become so much richer. And I also wanted to point out that learning from someone in crisis doesn't just mean their answers and the things they do well. It means listening to their questions, their doubts and the tensions that they're grappling to hold together. Because they too can be an invitation from God to engage with him and be transformed. And that's what I want to do with Hezekiah this morning. Learn from how he responds to his situation without having the pain of going through what he went through. But also, I hope it will be a springboard for us to seek God as to be what can be learned from our own times of crisis that will help us grow in our prayer lives. So yes, unfortunately, I am giving you homework. Before we jump into this ancient story, though, I just wanted to give some context to you. After King Solomon's reign, the nation of Israel split into two kingdoms. You had Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And King Hezekiah was a ruler over the southern kingdom of Judah. And his father, King Ahaz, was just a barbaric man. As scripture records, he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God. In fact, he was so evil that he even burned some of his own sons as a sacrifice to other gods. And whilst Ahaz was king of Judah, they came under attack from Syria. But also even more devastatingly, they also came under attack from the nation of Israel. It was bad enough that their infighting had got to the point of them having two different rulers. 
But now God's people, who are meant to be a beacon to the nations, are now reduced to warring against each other. And so I wonder what life was like for Hezekiah growing up. Watching his brothers being killed one by one by their own father, terrified that he might be next. Growing up in a battle-torn nation under siege from multiple enemies, all whilst knowing that one day the responsibility for his people might fall on his shoulders. Considering the trauma and the evil that Hezekiah must have experienced and seen, honestly, I wouldn't have been surprised if he followed in the ways of his father. But scripture describes how aged only 25, he became king and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. He removed the high places, which were altars for other gods, and he reopened and repaired the temple. But we really see the righteous character of Hezekiah when he sends letters throughout not only Judah, but to Israel as well, a nation he'd witnessed attack his people. And he writes that they should come to the temple to keep the Passover and return to the Lord, which had not been kept as often as the law prescribed. And a great many people came, and there was such rejoicing and celebration that after the seven days that the festival was meant to last, they agreed to keep it going another seven days. But although Hezekiah was dealing with the spiritual state of his nation, his father's sins and actions continued to haunt him. When Judah was under attack from Syria and Israel, his father Ahaz had gone to the king of Assyria for help, paying for his army. But instead of helping, the king of Assyria had also started attacking Judah and forced them to pay taxes. And Hezekiah rebels against this unjust control that Assyria have against his nation. But this provokes them to come and attack Judah again. And the Assyrians take all the fortified cities of Judah, which was about 15 cities. And Hezekiah even tries to appease them by giving them all the silver from the temple and from the palace. He's so desperate that he even strips gold from the doors of the temple. But this doesn't work and the Assyrian king sends a great army to Jerusalem, led by a high-ranking military official called Arabshakeh who then publicly threatens the destruction of the rest of Judah. He says it's no use them trusting in their God, and he lists out the gods of other nations that Assyria have conquered, saying if they were unable to stop them, then why would Israel's God? And that's where we're going to pick up the story, in Isaiah chapter 37, verse 1. As soon as King Hezekiah heard this, he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. And he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, and Shebna the secretary, and the senior priest covered with sackcloth, to the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos. They said to him, Thus says Hezekiah, This day is a day of distress, of rebuke, and of disgrace. Children have come to the point of birth, and there is no strength to bring them forth, which was a way of saying that they are in danger and powerless to stop it. It may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of the Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to mock the living God and will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayers for the remnant that is left. The size of the Assyrian army compared to Judah's means that Hezekiah knows he's in a helpless situation. He knows the only hope for the people is the help of their God. So he tears his clothes and he puts on sackcloth. Sackcloth was a symbol of repentance and mourning, 
and he heads straight to the temple. And I think there's something for us to learn here about the posture with which we approach God in prayer. Crisis humbles us, but in times of plenty, it's so easy to grow complacent and to approach God in an over-familiar way with no appreciation for who it is that we're coming to. Often in this world, if something is easily accessed, then it isn't of much value. But just because we have easy access to God does not mean that it is not the most valuable thing ever. Because the highest price was paid, the ultimate sacrifice made, it just wasn't paid by us. Hezekiah approaches God with no pretense. He doesn't come in his kingly robes, but in sackcloth. He starts with repentance. He gets right and he gets low. Let us not forget that we were sinners, enemies to God, and that we do not deserve for our prayers to be heard. And it's only by an act of breathtaking mercy, where God himself laid down his own life, that the relationship between God and man was restored. I know sometimes I act as if I'm the one doing God the favour by interrupting my day to speak to him. What also strikes me is that Hezekiah goes to the temple to pray, which was a public place central to the community. He's, in, he's the king and he's in sackcloth. People would have noticed him. This in itself was a step of faith. He was publicly admitting that there was nothing that even he, the king of this nation, could do to prevent the oncoming invasion. That there was only one hope for this nation, Yahweh. I think prayer is one of the main arenas in which our faith is truly walked out. It's where the rubber hits the road. It's easy to profess that we have faith in God while still doing a kind of a load of things as a sort of backup in case he doesn't answer our prayer. But when we truly seek God in prayer, we step into a place of vulnerability and faith. And prayer is such a vulnerable thing. I think that's really important for us to acknowledge. By coming to God with our deepest desires and needs, we're opening ourselves up to the possibility of huge disappointment if he does not answer our prayers in the way and the timing that we expect. And so every time we engage with God in prayer, it's a step of faith. We come carrying the scars of past unanswered prayers and we bring our offering of faith to God and we ask again. But what is faith is not approaching God admitting and admitting our powerlessness and fully trusting him with the things that we hold most dear. Are we willing to wrestle with God as Jacob did and refuse to let go until he blesses us? Or will we start out earnestly in prayer, but over time as disappointment and disillusionment creep in, bring our request to God less and less? I really feel the challenge of this. How many chances will I give God to answer my prayer? But if we can keep this perspective, keep the faith, then I think it will help us to persist in prayer. This links with another thing that I believe God's been trying to teach me. Because prayer is not just communication with God, it's communion with him. Prayer is not just communication with God, it's communion with him. It's not just coming to him with a list of requests once a day but a lifestyle of constantly abiding in his presence. The garden imagery in the Bible has been really helpful for me when it comes to prayer. The Garden of Eden was a place where God and man walked together in the cool of the day. 
And I really like the idea that as well as them having incredible conversations where God just continually blew Adam and Eve's mind, maybe sometimes they just walked alongside one another in companionable silence, taking in the beauty of the garden. Eden was a place where heaven and earth met, where God and man communed together. Jesus said to the criminal on the cross that today you will be with me in paradise. And that word paradise in Greek actually means garden, guiding the reader to make the connection back to Eden. Today you will be with me in the garden. And this garden imagery is prevalent throughout scripture from the first pages to the last. And I think scripture is trying to communicate that Eden, the opportunity for God and his people to dwell together, has not been completely lost until the day of judgment. And when we pray, it's as if we tear a hole in reality and we open up a portal to the garden, to God's presence. Because there's two realities happening, happening simultaneously, or two kingdoms. There's the physical reality of this world, which is the one that we operate in, But then simultaneously, there's a spiritual reality where God rules and there's no evil, no sickness or no pain. And perhaps rather than thinking of heaven as somewhere up there, it may help us to think of it as overlaid on top of this physical world. And one day these two realities will be fully joined in the new heavens and the new earth. But for now, in the in-between, we walk in the physical world, in the earthly kingdom. But prayer gives us access to the heavenly kingdom. And when we see miracles and when we encounter God, we're seeing heaven break through. And so if, as we pray, it's it's as if we open up this portal to the garden where God walks, then I'd love to keep this portal open all of the time. Maybe that's what Paul's getting at with when he talks of unceasing prayer. Sometimes God and I could be engaged in deep conversations, but sometimes I could just be changing a nappy and we could be sat in companionable silence. Both are valid. Both can be prayer if we live in light of a different reality, a different kingdom. That's what we have available to us in prayer. The ability to bring heaven to earth and to dwell in the presence of our creator as we go throughout our day. We're going to continue reading in Isaiah 37 verse 5. When the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, Say to your master, Thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard, with which the young men of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him, so that he shall hear a rumour and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. The Rabshakeh returned and found the king of Assyria fighting against Libna, for he had heard that the king had left Lashish. Now the king heard concerning Tehekah, king of Cush, He has set out to fight you. And when he heard it, he sent messengers to Hezekiah, saying, Thus shall you speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah. Do not let your God, in whom you trust, deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all lands, devoting them to destruction. And shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered them, the nations that my fathers destroyed, Gozan, Haran, Reseph, and the people of Eden who were in Telassar? Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of the city of Seraphim, the king of Hena, or the king of Iva? The prophecy from Isaiah comes true, and the king of Assyria gets pulled away from his attack of Jerusalem. But he doesn't want Hezekiah to think it's over, so he sends a letter to Hezekiah warning him that he's going to come and return with his army and continue to attack. 
and that if the gods of the other nations were no match for his military prowess, then it's hopeless to trust in the God of Israel. But we're now going to read Hezekiah's prayer in response to this letter. And I think that there's definite echoes of the Lord's prayer in there. So see if you can pick out the similarities as we read on. Verse 14. Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord. O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are God alone. You you are the God, you alone. Of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Once again, Hezekiah's first response is to go up to the house of the Lord, and he spreads out the letter in front of him before the Lord, which was a physical demonstration of him laying out his problems in front of God. And then he prays. The first thing that he does is to address God. There is such power in declaring truth about God in prayer. It gives him the glory and it transforms our hearts. There is power in truth and truth spoken can change situations. It's so important for us to meditate on and declare truths about God's character and what he's done. And as we understand who we're coming to, it fuels our desire to pray. And so that's essentially what I want to do now. I want to declare some truths about God. And my prayer is that as I do that, God would be glorified and the Holy Spirit would work those truths a little deeper into our hearts. I said I thought that there were some similarities to the Lord's Prayer here. So I think there's similarities to the phrase in the Lord's Prayer of our Father when Hezekiah prays the phrase, God of Israel. He's essentially saying our Father, God of my people. He's declaring that God has chosen the Israelites from all the nations to be his chosen people. How amazing is it that we get to pray our Father, that we can declare that we are part of God's chosen people and that we're now not bound by belonging to a particular nation, but by those who follow Jesus. And that we have the unimpeded access to the creator of the universe that a child has to a father. When Hezekiah prays, Lord of hosts, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. He exalts God, proclaiming that he dwells in the heavenly realm. And it's similar to when the Lord's Prayer says, in heaven, hallowed be your name. After meditating on the intimacy of God as Father, we then get to consider the power and the might of the one who is Lord over a heavenly host creator of the heavens and the earth and to help us consider the awesomeness of the one who hears our prayers i've written a spoken word that pulls together different glimpses that scripture gives us into god's throne room glory air thick with the weight brilliant bright radiant light pierces the misty air throne emerges King, Lord of Lords, high and lifted up, his train fills the temple. Appearance of fiery gemstones, hair like white wool, clothes like untouched snow, pure, without blemish. He speaks, foundations shake. Your response, knees bent, face down.
great white throne. Flames of fire, throne never burns away. River of fire pours forth, thunder, lightning. Surrounding the throne, sea of glass, emerald rainbow, emblem of peace and mercy. Seven burning torches signifies the Holy Spirit. Host of heaven, to his left, to his right, seraphim above. Six wings beating. Two cover their face, two cover their feet, two keep them aloft. Day, night, holy, holy, holy. Four heavenly creatures, likeness of lion, ox, man, eagle. Twenty-four thrones, twenty-four elders, living creatures crying out to him who is seated on the throne. Glory, honour, thanks. Elders crumple, crowns cast, crying out to their God. Worthy, glory, honour, power. Heavenly choir, thousands upon thousands of angels, singing to the Lamb, worthy, power, wealth, wisdom, might, honour, glory, blessing. Every creature in heaven, on earth, under the earth, crying out to the Lamb, blessing, honour, glory, might, forever. Master of the Universe, Conqueror of death, lamb, lion, looks at you, invites you to sit on his throne. If we can constantly remind our hearts who it is that we have access to, and the fact that scripture declares that we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places, then it will change our approach to prayer. When all else was stripped away, Hezekiah came face to face with the otherness of God. And when he made his request, he was conscious of who it was that he was making it to. And so after addressing God, Hezekiah continues in verse 17. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear all the words of Sennacherib, who was the king of Assyria, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were no gods but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of this earth may know that you alone are the Lord. I think the thing that staggers me most about the second half of Hezekiah's prayer is just how simple and short it is. He asks God to listen to him, he explains the situation, and he asks God to save his people. And I started off by looking for some anointed combination of words that Hezekiah used to unlock something, but it's just not the case. Sometimes we don't know what to say in prayer or where to begin, and so we don't begin at all. But I can't think of a more important thing in prayer than turning up. We can turn up angry or desperate or doubting, but if we turn up and turn to God, he can work with that. The reason that Hezekiah gives as to why God should save his people is interesting. It's not so that they might all live long lives. 
is so that God's name might be glorified and that the kingdoms of this earth might know that he is the one true God. And that word kingdom again makes me think of the Lord's prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When we pray, we have the ability to ask God to manifest heaven on earth, to usher in his kingdom. And I think this is our primary calling as God's people, to see his kingdom come, to take Eden to the ends of the earth. And prayer is a key way that we can see this accomplished. We're not just living in anticipation of a future glory, but to see heaven invade earth. We have something that some of our friends, neighbours and work colleagues don't. We have the ear of the Father, the ear of the King, and he desires us to use that position to bless those around us. To stand in the gap for those who are far away from God and ask that his transformative kingdom would come. That they would see him as he truly is. That they would choose to join his kingdom and submit to his rule. After seeking God in prayer, Hezekiah receives a message from God through Isaiah. And you can read the full response in verses 21 to 35. But essentially God says, because you have prayed to me concerning the king of Assyria, I will bring my judgment upon them. And looking at the end of his response in verse 33, he says, He shall not come into this city or shoot an arrow there, or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same shall he return. He sh- and he shall not come into this city, declares the Lord, for I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servants, David. And then the one who heard Hezekiah's cry, who hears our cry, and who has the power to transform situations, acts. And the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. And as he was worshipping in the house of Nishrok his god, Adramelech and Sharazar his sons struck him down with the sword. And after they escaped into the land of Ararat, Ershadon his son reigned in his place. God destroys the Assyrian army and saves Judah. (laughs) It's such a remarkable story. And um, yeah, I just encourage you now to leave, leave space to ask the Holy Spirit if there's anything that you can learn from times of crisis um, that can help change your perspective and, and your mindset, um, help you partner with God and to see heaven come to earth through your prayers. Um, yeah, so I just encourage you to spend some time uh, with God now.